In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. And today we have another super exciting episode for you. But I gotta say, we cannot catch a fucking break on this show. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, you know, it's it's not particularly classy to compare, you know, minor inconveniences to someone's really big problems in life. But yeah. it's kind of annoying that Trump keeps getting indicted, yeah. forcing us to continue to talk about this motherfucker, like, yeah. getting indicted. Yeah, I keep I keep thinking of that scene in uh, Liar Liar, where the dude is like asking for legal advice, mm-hmm. and Jim Carrey just shouts into the phone, "Stop breaking the law, asshole!" <laughs> That's kind of how I'm feeling right now. <laughs> I know it's exhausting. It's like we have not talked about Trump this much, literally, since he was like getting impeached, or maybe like when he was getting elected, or maybe the 2020 election. Like, yeah. It's like, oh, it sucks that see, he's still spiking. See, in we had radar. we had a whole ass hat of my life yes. segment dedicated to him, mm-hmm. and I was thinking, God, after this, no more, no more talking about Trump. Just mm, you know, we wish. and and the thing is, the thing is, as you will hear next week when we do our breakdown of the Republican debate, mm-hmm. there are so many other horrible choices that the Republican Party can choose as their president. You don't have to go with this same horrible choice. You can diversify the horribleness. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so if we haven't given you a hint enough already, we're talking about Trump's indictment first. Um, Yep. And, you know, that's it's been uh coming you know for a while and so we we just had to do it um and then our second segment we're going to be talking about uh, a more you know deep divey segment about boycotts and what makes boycotts effective or not what makes mm. them uh you know what makes them work and so you know there's there's been a lot of news recently like there's been the republican debate we're going to talk about that next week uh you know Putin just shot down <laughs> a fucking flight with his like the like his uh the guy that like launched a coup in Russia. Yeah. I'm sure which, we'll talk about that at some point as well. Which by the way, fucking called it. Yeah, pat yourself on the back. <laughs> to be I, fair, I Putin is going to kill the people that are trying to like yeah. tear down his it's, government is is <laughs> that's not a that's that's, that's you don't a have to be clairvoyant prediction <laughs> yeah yeah and i will say i will say it happened a little bit sooner than i thought it would but like mm-hmm. i mean and less I subtly totally called it and fucking less i did think it anti-aircraft would, I did think missile it would be a little bit more subtle <laughs> yeah. i did think that but honestly i'm not surprised and yeah i'm gonna pat myself on the back totally called yeah. it yeah so there's been a lot of news we're not going to talk about all of that we're focusing on the indictment and on this boycott segment today but i'm sure you'll hear about those other topics from us so sorry if you're hungry for our takes on those things (laughs) we'll get around to it yeah yeah so speaking get around to it getting around to it trump finally got a fucking mug shot (laughs) (laughs) so and man does he have a mug he looks pretty rough to be fair mug shots are not typically flattering uh, especially not when you are a puppet just 
full of ketchup. He's basically I don't a know. balloon. I think that I think <laughs> I think Mark Meadows' mugshot. I don't know. It's There's not, kind not of bad. a. I mean, I I. I'm sure lots of people will disagree with me, mm. but like I look at Trump's mugshot, he looks like a literal devil. I look at Rudy Giuliani's mugshot, he looks like a vampire. Uh, I look at um, uh, Sidney Powell's mugshot, and she looks like she's about to, I don't know, send a an army of flying monkeys at me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, something about Mark Meadows' mugshot, like there's kind of like this dangerous energy to it. Like, Oh, hello. How you doing? Wait, now I'm pulling these mugshots. I'm dangerous. I've only seen Trump's. uh, (laughs) Wow. Oh man. Yeah. Some of these people look rough. Yeah. He does have kind of a, like a, it's a little bit mysterious. It's a little bit. Yeah. um, Yeah. He kind of looks fucking crazy. Like listener, if you have a computer, go look this up. He kind of looks like, he should be in like a Batman movie. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Yeah. And, dude. and I can't, and I can't tell you if it's as like one of the, you know, people that Batman begrudgingly allies himself with or as one of the villains, but I don't know. There's something, there's something weirdly endearing about his mugshot. Oh man. We, I guess we're huge Mark Meadows fans on this show. Wow. <laughs> I, that's, that's news to me. <laughs> Mark mean, you, Meadows, you... a golden boy. <laughs> Okay, so the reason all these people are getting their mugshots taken is because uh, last week, Trump and uh, 18 other defendants, plus like 50 other uh, unnamed co-conspirators, so these 19 people were indicted on 42 total counts in in this racketeering case in Georgia— uh, related to their efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. So they're Wait, indicted. that's illegal? <laughs> yeah, it turns out. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into some of the legal stuff because this is a definitely one of the most novel legal approaches that has been taken yeah. so far. And not in like a, not in like a, oh, well, I don't know if, you know, someone can indict a former president novel legal approach, but kind of like approaching the organization of people around the efforts to overturn the election as an organized crime, essentially. Um, And we'll get, yeah, yeah, and so we'll get into that. And so these people have been charged with, uh, like, a ton of different stuff, and I don't think we're going to be able to get through all of it because literally there's, like, you know, obviously 41 counts under this indictment um, (laughs) covering 161 overt acts by Trump and his associates in Georgia. But ultimately... The prosecutor in this case said, quote, uh, the enterprise constituted an ongoing organization whose members and associates functioned as a continuing unit for a common purpose of achieving the objective of the enterprise, which is essentially a way of uh, covering all of the actions taken to overturn the 2020 election as a, you know, as organized crime. Yeah. Yeah. And they're they're doing it under the uh, racketeering Influenced and Corruption Organizations Act, also mm-hmm. known as the RICO Act. Yeah. And what's interesting about using that, that's the that's the novel part of this. That is often used to go after mobsters. Yes. And one thing that I would like to point out about this is that there was actually a prominent commentator during the Obama administration 
Hmm. a prominent right-wing commentator that y'all might recognize that actually argued for the use of the RICO Act to go after the Obama administration. Hmm. His name was one Benjamin Shapiro, <laughs> who is now basically saying, well, no, no matter what you think about the, uh, the, 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 all, all of these, these charges or what, what you think about Trump, uh, you shouldn't like this because this is the thing that happens in third world countries. Of course. <laughs> well, it's I like, mean, dude, you, while you were like, you, you argued for using this exact law against Obama, bro. Yeah. Like they, they, they're using your approach. You should yeah. be flattered. Yeah. Except against an actual crime instead of a yeah, fake except one. an actual crime. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, so actually, yeah, let's get right into it um, and talk a little bit about RICO and like why it might apply. And then we can get into what's being charged here and, and the people that are defendants. Yeah. RICO stands for Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations. And this is, again, a law to go after organized crime. It was originally put together to go after like mafia bosses. Um, and this is actually a fairly typical kind of set of um, actions that you might go after with something like RICO. So it's a bunch of fairly disparate people um, that are working together towards a common criminal goal. And the whole goal behind RICO is that it enables prosecutors to charge defendants for overt acts that wouldn't necessarily always on their own be criminal, but yeah. are part of a larger criminal conspiracy and uh, and and part of like a larger organization of people to affect a criminal outcome. Yeah. Um, so basically th th think of it this way. Um a mob boss puts out a hit on you know some some dude because he didn't pay his protection money or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh you know, the dude gets gets killed by one of the lower level mobsters. This basically makes it so that that person at the top who runs the organization mm -hmm. can still be prosecuted for being part of of an act that was a criminal act. Yes. And that that makes total sense because you are I mean as as we've talked about in previous episodes conspiracy to commit an yeah. act means that you don't have to be the one that pulls the trigger if you were involved in actually doing it. And if mm -hmm. you're the one that ordered it, then that especially makes it so that you should be prosecuted. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so one of the things that a RICO case enables you to do is to include a lot more detail and context in like kind of defining the scope of the criminal case. Um, so rather than like charging each like act individually, um, the overt acts are kind of bundled together in order to make a case and provide evidence for this organization of, of, of criminality. And prosecutor Fonnie Willis, who is leading the prosecution here, um, described this as, quote, RICO is a tool that allows a prosecutor's office and law enforcement to tell the whole story and, and basically saying that it enables them to um, show like this pattern of criminality and, organi and organized criminality to jurors in order for them to be able to, um, you know, make their best case. One thing to note about RICO in this case is that in the federal context, it's a really difficult and limited law to apply. Um, so it was on the federal, the federal act was established just to target 
organized crime activities around money laundering, bribery, drug trafficking, and some other serious offenses. But Georgia's version of the law specifically says that attempting or soliciting any of the mentioned crimes in the act can count as a predicate act. So basically, in Georgia, RICO prosecutions are, there's kind of a lower bar, and they're, they're easier to bring, and they can be brought for more stuff. And so while yeah. this wouldn't pretend, this potentially wouldn't be a tool that could be used at the federal level in Georgia specifically, where Trump has he has some like some really a really bad record um, with regard to the twenty twenty election. Uh, yeah. This like law is potentially you know much more powerful. Yeah, and going through the actual counts themselves, mm-hmm. you see that word solicitation a lot. Yes. Um, solicitation in this case, meaning basically telling somebody to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to, I want to try to read through the counts as quickly as possible. Like just, <laughs> yeah, just there's the, fucking just, 40 of them. There's 40 of them. Yeah. There's, there's oh, well, actually and, there's 41 of them. Yeah. 41. Of them. <laughs> and one thing to call <laughs> but, out here is like Trump is charged under like 13 of these counts. Yeah. Um, and I found this approach really interesting to take Trump and and Willis is planning to like prosecute all of these counts together and prosecute all 19 defendants simultaneously which is more com- which is like you know more common in Rico cases than other cases and i think this is really interesting and and mainly because i kind of like the approach from a political perspective of treating Donald Trump just like another one of the criminal people involved in this organization like yes he's yeah. the head but yeah. it's also like, yeah, but he's not the only person. And and it really reduces the ability to say, oh, they're, they're just persecuting Donald Trump. Because no, it's a criminal organization and they're trying to go after the whole thing. It's kind of like yeah. it's kind of like if the the DOJ had prosecuted Trump as part of like all of the all of the people that were charged under January six prosecutions. Yeah. Because it would be like, oh, it's just part of the crim like yeah. the criminal enterprise here. Yeah. Yeah. So uh count one. Uh, violation of the Georgia RICO, uh, which we talked about a little bit. Count two, uh, solicitation of violation of oath of, by public officer, false statements and writings, false statements and writings, solicitation of violation of oath by public officer, solicitation of oath by public officer, false statements and writings, impersonating a public officer, conspiracy to commit impersonating a public officer, forgery in the first degree, conspiracy to commit forgery in the first degree, <laughs> false statements and writings. You see that a lot. Yeah. Uh, conspiracy to commit uh, false statements and writings. Criminal attempts to commit f- to commit filing false documents. Mm-hmm. Conspiracy to commit f- uh, filing false documents. Forgery in the first degree. Conspiracy to commit forgery in the first degree. False statements and writings. Conspiracy to commit false statements and writings. <laughs> Criminal attempt to influence witnesses. Criminal attempt. Criminal attempt to commit influencing witnesses. Criminal attempt to commit false statements and writings. Solicitation of violation of oath by public officer. False statements and writings, false statements and writings, false statements and writings, <laughs> filing false documents, solicitation of violation of oath by public officer, false statements and writings, conspiracy yeah. to commit solicitation of false statements and writings, influencing witnesses, conspiracy to commit election fraud, cons- conspiracy to commit election fraud, conspiracy 
to commit computer theft, conspiracy to commit computer trespass, conspiracy to commit computer invasion of privacy, conspiracy to defraud the state, solicitation of violation of oath by public officer. I think I said I think I said office in the other ones. It's actually officer. <laughs> my 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 apologies. Uh, false statements and writings, false statements and writings, and perjury. <laughs> they're <Okay>. really <laughs> they're really bad at writing the truth apparently well so, okay so as as i listen to that and we'll and we, we can summarize what the fuck those things are talking about <laughs> but as i listen to that if i didn't have the context here i'd be like oh these are like normal crimes that criminal enterprises do yeah right they do criminal activities and then they try to cover up those activities by filing false information and doing and and forging documents and soliciting unlawful actions by officials like these are very familiar kind of criminal yeah. and boring kind of criminal charges which i kind of love about this particular case it's like yes these are related to political things but the fact is that like you're making false statements to attempt to solicit like officials to violate their oaths of office you're filing false documents and forgeries you're impersonating officials by like i don't know pretending like you're an elector when you're not or some or or yeah. or uh filing false versions of electors right you're stealing like data from and attempting to steal data and attempting to get past like government firewalls like these are just criminal activities of an organ uh, an organization of a crime organization and like i really appreciate that this feels like somewhat of a normal kind of prosecution even though it involves trump and the 2020 election yeah yeah i mean there were there are so many cases that are are at this point notorious and public yeah. And in many cases, actual recorded of Trump soliciting people to violate their oath of office. Totally. I mean, famously, uh, Trump said to the acting United States Attorney General, um, just say that the election was corrupt mm -hmm. and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Mm -hmm. On top of that, we all heard the recording of Trump's call to Brad Raffensperger, mm -hmm. where he straight up said, go find me 11,000 votes. Yep. That is soliciting, that is soliciting yep. a public official to violate their oath of office. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And on top of that, there's a bunch of detail in the indictment um, <clears throat> reviewing like the organization's attempt to harass election workers. Um, yeah. And attempting to persuade Georgia lawmakers to ignore um, you know, votes and appoint a false slate of electors. And the indictment also accuses uh, Sidney Powell and several of the co-defendants of tampering with voting machines, which of course they did because they were trying to steal the data that belonged to Dominion voting systems of all of these voting records. And I would just like to reiterate, if all Trump had done was go around saying the election was stolen, the election mm -hmm. was stolen, I should have won, the election was stolen... We That's wouldn't even fine. be having this conversation. Exactly. That's fine. I mean, it's not yep. fine, like on a moral level. No, it's not cool. Wrong. It's not <laughs> but cool. It's not illegal. But it's not illegal. Yeah, yeah, it's not illegal. Again, to to reiterate a point that we made in our last episode, the speech itself is not the crime. Yes, it's the evidence used to establish motivation for the mm -hmm. crime. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so as we mentioned, there are tons of people. Um, named in this indictment, so there are 19 people named. It's also described that this is a criminal organization of 50-plus individuals. 
Um, but the people that are defendants in this case are obviously Trump, um, his White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, his attorney and former uh, New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Then you also have um, members of Trump's Justice Department, uh, Department Jeffrey Clark, who we talked about last time, um, and who is like instrumental in attempting to, you know, kind of uh, take over the Justice Department in, or, in order to um, lie about there being election fraud. Um, and then a bunch of people that aided Trump and uh, his organization in Georgia, including, um, you know, uh, other of the other of his lawyers like John Eastman, Sidney Powell, and Kenneth Cheesebro. And then a bunch of other people. And one of the things that I think is 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 value about a RICO case, which I know is which has shown up in some of the reporting, is that because uh, defendants in a RICO case are often numerous and often loosely related, right? They're all only organized around this criminal activity. One of the goals of the RICO case is to get them to flip on other people in the organization <laughs> or on the higher ups. And so, like, now you've got a bunch of these people actually indicted, and they're not just getting subpoenas by, you know, the, um, you know, the House investigation, and they're not, and they're not, uh, you know, kind of waiting on the sidelines, waiting to see what happens. These people are actually indicted, and so there's a bunch of leverage here to potentially get them to flip and even get more evidence of criminality uh, by by Trump and his associates. Yeah, and I mean. Here's the thing, Donnie. When you surround yourself with people that where their entire job is basically to lie to you, mm -hmm. yeah, make you feel good and like you won an election that you didn't. <laughs> yeah. You can't be too surprised if they end up saving their own ass because you're not dealing with people that have integrity. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So a couple other things I think we should definitely touch on. One is on the timing of all this and how it may or may not impact the presidential race um, and potentially the, the office of the presidency. Yeah. So Fannie Willis has announced that her intention is to try to get this trial to happen within six months. Um, and that she wants to, as I mentioned already, prosecute all of the 19 defendants collectively. And, Pretty much every legal expert out there has said that this is an incredibly ambitious and unlikely timeline. So RICO yeah. cases can take an extremely long amount of time because they're very complex. Like like one RICO case in Georgia has been going on since 2013 and has not yeah. had a trial yet. And so like this could take a while just to get you know a conclusion. And at the same time, you got 19 defendants, each of whom has their own lawyers, their own scheduling. They're, they will file their own motions for continuance and all of these things. And so, like, e even just logistically allowing all of them an opportunity to review the evidence and construct a defense and all this stuff will be really difficult to do within six months. Although, um, another thing that should be noted is that this is through the state of Georgia, mm -hmm. which means... It is not through the federal government. Yes. And the reason why that's important is because, number one, it means that if Trump does become president, mm -hmm. he can't pardon himself. Yes. And number two, it means that if he becomes president, he can't shut this down. Yes. Because it's not the Department of Justice that's investigating him. Now, I don't know if there might be some type of 
lawsuits that might need to be settled by the Supreme Court because there is mm. definitely an open question as to whether or not you can prosecute a sitting president. Yeah. And totally. something like that could very likely end up in front of the Supreme Court. Um, at least in terms of using his powers as uh, as the president and the his control over the Justice Department, yeah. uh, he can't really do anything about this. And on top of that, Georgia is a very interesting state when it comes to pardons hmm. because the government, or rather the governor, cannot just pardon anybody. In mm -hmm. fact, the government doesn't pardon anybody. The part there's a, there's a pardoning board that makes decisions about pardons after the person has already served time. They can only be granted five years after the person is released. They cannot be granted while the person is serving or before the person has been charged. So even if a Republican governor of Georgia wanted to pardon Trump, which mm -hmm. I have the feeling that you know, that's not going to be number one on Kemp's list. He can't. Yeah. So there's really not much that Trump could do in that case to to get out of being prosecuted or to, rather to get out of serving a jail sentence if yeah. he is found guilty. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. This one seems like it might be the the case most likely to put Trump behind bars, especially because in Rico cases, there's a minimum like sentence of five years so if he's convicted he goes to a prison unless there's some kind of intervening like exception made for presidents i could also see potential i mean i'm just making this up but like you know you you might see like well let's delay this conclusion of this prosecution if he gets elected or something until after his presidency at which time we can sentence him um or something like that like it is totally unprecedented waters that we're in right now this is just never before yeah. seen. So it's difficult to say exactly how this will turn out, but it's definitely true that he cannot pardon himself. He can't shut down the investigation and there's really no way for him to be pardoned in Georgia itself. Um, and so whether this will impact the, the election is kind of to be determined. Like so far, so far, polling doesn't look good for Trump though. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Since this kind of come, came out, so this came out in in uh, on like the fifteenth or sixteenth of August, at which point he was polling at around fifty three to fifty four percent, and since then his his lead has dropped to fifty one percent, which to be fair is only you know kind of two points in a race where he's leading by like thirty, but <laughs> but it's the first time we've seen like a dip as the result of an indictment. And yeah. his favorability rating has also gone down. So yeah. it's a little bit difficult to tell what's driving all of this. But, you know, it's going to be really difficult for him to go through so many prosecutions and also campaign at the same time and also try to win that swing vote in a general election when people yeah. aren't even sure if he's going to be able to, like, you know, yeah. be in the White House and not behind bars. And the thing is, I I still stand by basically the same analysis that I've had several times, which yeah. is... This is either going to help him or not really do much to hurt him uh, in the primary. Yeah. But it's going to hurt him in the general. And yes. as it stands, polling is not looking good for Trump. Mm -hmm. So Politico released a poll that showed several results that are not looking good for the former president. Um, first, should the federal trial 
on Donald Trump's 2020 election subversion take place before the presidential election in November 2024? 61% say yes, 19% say no, 19% say don't know. Wow. They want to know. Like Americans want to know what happened here. Yeah. Um, Do you believe that Donald Trump is guilty of the alleged crime in the federal 2020 election subversion election case? 51% say yes. Hmm. 26% say no. 22% say don't know. Wow. And the thing is, I actually, I mean, I obviously think he's guilty. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, like, we saw a lot of the shit before our very eyes. Yeah. But the thing is, numbers like that are not good for the president because most likely people that are at this point saying don't know, like, they're probably thinking, well, I want to wait to see the results of the trial. Totally. And if he is found guilty, yeah. well, we're going to see that number go up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned politically about how much focus is being put on the outcomes of the criminal cases here yeah. just because like you know a, a meeting the bar to be convicted criminally is pretty high and if he isn't convicted criminally it will look to a lot of that 26 percent if not all of them like his name has been cleared yeah and so like i think i think the case that needs to be made is the one-two punch and I think Biden's campaign is doing this as best they can without speaking directly to any of these cases, which they shouldn't be. Yeah, they but should. like the one-two punch of like he's facing all of these criminal counts and criminal indictments, and these activities, regardless of their criminality, would be should be disqualifying for someone as president. Like, yeah. with, you, you're just too vulnerable if you don't make that second point to his him not being criminally convicted, which is not the same thing as being innocent. It's just the same thing as not being criminally guilty. Yeah. Uh, this one right here, I would say is probably the most damning because mm-hmm. the, the narrative that the Trump administration or rather the Trump campaign has been trying to sell is that this is actually going to help Trump in a general election because people are going to see how fabricated this is and how bullshit this is. 44% in this poll said that the conviction case would have no impact on their likelihood of supporting Trump. Hmm. 32% said it would make them less likely to support Trump, including a third of independents. Hmm. And only 13% of respondents said it would make them more likely to, to support Trump. Interesting. So I'm 13% sorry. 13% <laughs> too high, but still. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not that high. So, so I, I'm sorry, but what that tells me is that 44% of people have already made up their mind and of the people that haven't made up their mind, most of them, it would, it would make them less likely to support Trump. Yeah. So, totally. Yeah. Not, I think that's right. Not I think, good news for Trump. Yeah, exactly. And also like he, his, you know, his original response to the Georgia indictment was coming out and saying, I'm going to do a press conference. That's going to prove that this election was stolen. And of course he canceled that press conference but importantly, that wouldn't make any difference criminally. But obviously, he's trying to spin this as like he's only really making the political case publicly, trying to make the case that, you know, he's just being persecuted and therefore it shouldn't have any impact on him politically. But even yeah. like in Georgia itself, like if, if the whole rest of the country didn't give a shit about the Georgia case, but Georgians did, that's a swing state. Trump's going to need that state in order yeah. to win the election. And so, like, to yeah. the degree that Georgians, Georgians feel this at home, um, this could be risky to him. 
and a yeah. number of GOP strategists have talked about that as well. So we'll see what the impact is. I think you're right that ultimately, like the path to winning the presidency goes through people that are undecided and criminal indictments don't do well with, well, <laughs> we can only assume criminal indictments don't help you, you with undecided voters. So now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, the tip for good. So Nathan, why do we do tips for good every week? Well, Michael, we do tips for good, well, some weeks, because come a little bit closer. Mm-hmm. You're my kind of man. Oh. So big and so strong. Oh. Come a little bit closer. I'm all alone. Um, and the night is so long. Um. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you really you really picked a, an erotic song. <laughs> it's just scene. because I love you. It's just the tip for good. <laughs> <laughs> uh yes yes and you know and you let's know take what? this off air <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and and you know what you know what michael the reason why i'm saying all of this about you uh-huh. is because michael i strongly believe yeah that you my friend make the world a better place oh, that is so nice to hear you know people don't say that to me enough <laughs> <laughs> But you know what else makes the world a better place, Nathan? What what is that? What's that? Tips. Tips makes the world a better place. That is true. Yes. Damn it. We should Damn just skip it. right we, to that next time. We should just yeah. Yeah. Why are we why we'll are we messing around the with these like, song lyrics? And Let's go right just, to the the tip just, for good. Just yeah, just the tip. Just, just the, tip. the tip. Not the eroticism, just the yep, tip. You know. Exactly. So Nathan, what <laughs> is our tip for good this week? <laughs> well, Michael <laughs> Our tip for good this week is uh Know the difference between advocacy and virtue signaling. Mm. Mm-hmm. So let's understand what virtue signaling is. Virtue signaling is saying something often political, not with the intention of trying to make changes for people, but with the intention of demonstrating to people that you hold the correct view. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. The difficult thing is that oftentimes the exact same statement can be virtue signaling or mm-hmm. advocacy yeah. based on the intention of the person who said it. And I think that this really does come down to the fact that you need to view advocacy as not some fun thing that you do on the weekend or some hip thing that you throw on social media, but something where you are actually trying to make measurable change in the world. Yeah. So, for example, I often see instances where, you know, some piece of legislation will come down um, that discriminates against trans people or, you know, and a person will will go on their Facebook and they'll say something like, I just want to let all of my trans friends know that you are loved and respected and this is a terrible piece of legislation. Now, that same statement could either be advocacy or virtue signaling depending on why the person said it. Mm -hmm. If the person said it because they want to make sure that their friends know that they're one of the good ones, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm one of the good ones. I'm one of the people that supports you, you know, don't, don't hate on me as a cis person, you know, because I'm with you. Mm -hmm. That's virtue signaling. However, maybe you're saying that because you know perfectly well that when stuff like that comes down, it genuinely does damage trans people. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, 
it leads to the statistic that we cite all the time about how more than half or approximately a half of trans youth have um, had suicidal ideation within the last year. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure that the friends that you have know that the the whole world isn't like that. Yeah. That's yeah. not that's not virtue signaling. That's actual advocacy. So what it comes down to is when you are posting political messages, always ask yourself, why am I doing this? Yes. Am I doing this so that people know that I'm a good guy or am I doing this because I genuinely want the world to change? Yeah, totally. And I think that's why I think that's why this tip is mostly about our self awareness and like yeah. self policing. Like it, it really isn't yeah. something that's like go out there and try to, you know, suss out all the people that are virtuous. Yeah, no, not at all. Cause not it's all. not, that's not useful. It's not effective and it's not how you build movements and it's not how you yeah. make change. But virtue signaling is also not how you build movements and make change. Cause eventually your motivations will be misaligned with the facts. You yeah. won't have the information. You won't have the awareness you won't be doing the work to do the right thing. I mean, we've all, honestly, I've been there. I'm sure we've all been there where we're like oh, yeah. trying to do the right thing. We're trying to, we're trying to like make it clear that like we're not like that or, or something like that. And oh, yeah. we step in it. Yep. We'd fuck up <laughs> because that, that motivation is somewhat corrupting. And yeah. so if we take the work seriously and take the information that we're meant, that we need to gather seriously and, and take the intellectually challenging work of examining these concepts and ideas seriously, we'll be much more equipped to do things accurately and well. But the only people that can do that for ourselves is ourselves. And that's Tips for Good. So for this next segment, we are talking about boycotts, which are in some ways kind of related to our tip for good in, in the yeah, difference between very much, you know, advocacy very much. And, and virtue signaling. Well, yeah, we're going to get into it. We're going to talk a little bit about like what they are and what makes for a successful boycott and kind of why people boycott. And then, you know, we'll just get into it. So something that is commonly said, usually by the other side when their opponents are doing a boycott mm -hmm. is that boycotts never work. Yeah. That if anything, you're helping the image, you're helping the, the product or whatever. And what's usually said by people that are pro boycott is, well, I mean, look at times in history in which boycotts have been successful. Sure. And the, the most famous example that they often point to is of course the, the Montgomery bus boycott during mm -hmm. the civil rights movement. Sure. So, I actually, I want to start out by talking a little bit about that, talking okay, a little yeah. bit about the Montgomery bus boycotts and why that was such a monumentally successful boycott and why it actually did lead to change. And the reason why I want to start out establishing that is if we understand why that succeeded, then maybe we can understand, number one, how to make sure uh, boycotts that we might participate in the future actually succeed. Number two, what instances a boycott will actually be successful? Mm -hmm. And number three, uh, learning some cool historical facts. Dope. So the story that is often uh, sold to us about the Montgomery bus boycott is in the heat of the moment, 
there is this there is this woman named Rosa Parks who was asked to give up her seat on the bus and she was tired and she decided, you know what? I don't feel like it. And then she got arrested. And that one moment, that one instance of this person refusing to give up their seat on the bus sparked an entire boycott that was just spontaneous, completely unplanned, and would eventually lead to the integration of uh, the buses in the in the Montgomery system. There's no more. This is the this is the white section. This is the this is the black section. Uh, it's now integrated. And yeah. the reason why that works so well is because, you know, is because black people were a huge source of income for those buses, and they could not afford to keep running without that extra revenue. So that's mm. usually the story that's that inspirational. Yeah, really it's inspirational. inspirational. Yeah. It's, it's not going to set us up well for a good boycott, though. <laughs> yeah. It also leaves out a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, that is in no way to undermine uh, Rosa Parks. Yeah. But it's to point out the fact that she was a part of a larger movement mm-hmm. of organizers that did a lot of work to set this up and to make this successful. First off, she wasn't even the first... Uh, black woman to refuse to give up her seat on the bus and get arrested. In fact, months before her, there was this young woman named Claudette Colvin that also refused to give up her seat and was arrested. Now, she wasn't used as the face of the movement because she had what they referred to in those days as a reputation. Uh, She was younger. She was darker skinned. um, And, you know, she wasn't as highly established as a, you know, the, the nice calm, gentle church lady that Rosa Parks did. Mm -hmm. In fact, there are various cases of women getting arrested for refusing to give up their seat on the bus in Montgomery going back to the 1940s. Like there were multiple instances of that happening. And in fact, multiple lawsuits from various women for the Montgomery system. The local civil rights chapters and the local church leaders were waiting for some type of spark to ignite a boycott that they had basically already planned on having. Mm-hmm. And Rosa Parks was the perfect symbol of that. Yes. Yeah. And part of that organization was um, in order to get to work, they would basically organize carpools with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, the uh, church, the, the black church leaders and the civil rights activists would organize um, carpools so that they could still get to work. Uh, they would, they would help each other out. They worked as a community in order to make it so they could still live, go out, go on living their life without the buses so they could sustain the boycott. But the buses, you know, would not be getting their business. Mm-hmm. And that right there is what led to the success of it because it was this massive, organized, and planned effort by brilliant people. It wasn't spontaneous. It Mm -hmm. really just wasn't. I know that that makes a good story, but that's just not what happened. Yeah. And it it would be almost impossible for something like that to be spontaneous and for it to work. Because I think that's one of the big challenges of boycotts in general is that they do cost. They are challenging. They force us to give things up or to, like in the case of like boycotting like Walmart, for example, they force you to drive further for your goods or pay more for the things you need in your life. Same with Amazon. Like it actually is not something that's free, which means that 
you either have to be somewhat privileged to participate or you have to be supported to make it sustainable. And the sustainability is a key part of exerting that influence. It's something that yeah. you have to, and, and without planning, you can't necessarily make it sustainable and widespread. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So I think that a lot of that demonstrates lessons that are not learned today mm-hmm. by modern boycotts. And I think that's why a lot of modern boycotts have not really been that successful. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things to also realize is that the in in the Montgomery in the case of the Montgomery bus boycott, they were boycotting public transportation. They weren't boycotting a corporation. Mm-hmm. They were boycotting public transportation, which means that it was a government institution that was suffering because of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And it had to be a government institution that would then make changes to integrate buses in Montgomery. Nowadays, a lot of the boycotts that that we see are done on these massive corporations. What often drives it is this idea of, you know, if I can't like like it, it's 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 this feeling of if I can't vote in an election anytime soon because like elections only happen once a year. I mean. If you're lucky, if you're in the if you're in Virginia, they happen once a year. If you're in other mm-hmm. states, they might happen once every other year. Um, but money is something that you use every day, and the idea is that's something that you can use in order to vote every single day. So it makes people feel like they have some measure of agency over the practices of corporations or individuals, um, and it makes people feel like they can make a difference in that way, and. I would just like to say, I don't necessarily fault people for feeling that way. And in sure. fact, yeah. I'm not even going to say that boycotting is useless or that you should never boycott, no, or no. even that I don't boycott. I There are several organizations that I do boycott that I refuse to go to. Um, I don't go to Hobby Lobby because of the court case uh, a few years ago where they basically used religious justification in order to, um, in order to get out of like... Uh, Pay of uh, paying for the insurance on certain contraceptives that weren't even abortion. I, yeah. I think that I think that was imposing uh, religious views on their employees. Uh, I boycott Exxon because in the 70s uh, they discovered climate change and then they covered it up. Uh, and not to mention the Alaskan oil spill. Um, I try to avoid BP because of the uh, oil spill in uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, I boycott Chick Fil A because when I was in high school they decided to make it. Uh, a political statement to go eat there. And I was like, all right, if you're going to make it a political statement Mm -hmm. against gay people to eat there, then I'm not going to eat there. Mm -hmm. Now, all of that being said, I don't pretend that me not going to those places makes a difference. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah. I would, I think there's like, yeah, I think there's a few interesting things going on when we think about this. Like one, there's the, there's to your point, like our individual kind of moral, feelings about contributing money to the bottom line of organizations that we that have practices we disagree with. Yeah. And I think this is like I think this is sometimes where there's a lot of squishiness in this area because like to your point like you're not buying a Chick-fil-A sandwich or yeah. say you say you fucking love Chick-fil-A and you go once a month. That's no money to them. Yeah. <laughs> And so, like, that doesn't mean it's not 
worthwhile. It doesn't, doesn't mean it's not worthwhile for you to do, and and yeah. you shouldn't feel you know good about making that choice. But you should understand like what it's doing, and I think that's important with regard to the sustainability of boycotts themselves, because yeah. it's not really a reasonable. Like it's one thing to say no Chick Fil A. It's one thing to say even like no fast food maybe, but like for yeah. a lot of people like. You know, they're like food's fucking expensive, and like to yeah. to say, you know, you should boycott anybody that that pays minimum wage to their employees. That would be impossible, yeah. Even though that's something that we would push for, and so like I yeah. think like, you know, that is one of the challenges here is that boycotts, if we expect them to have impacts, should be strategic, because if they're yeah. not strategic, we would just be impacting ourselves. And our and our own lives without the intended effects. Now, if you're doing again, if you're doing it for personal moral reasons, go for it. That was that was yeah. that was me when I was like, there was a period of a couple of years where I like wasn't eating meat at all, and this was yeah. related to like primarily to climate change and stuff like that. And my my will has like shattered since then, and I I eat meat periodically now. <laughs> but again, I had no, I was under no delusion that me yeah. not eating meat would have an actual practical effect. Um, but at the same time, like, I didn't want to give in to the idea that just because I'm part of a group of people that that would all need to change their behavior in order to affect change didn't mean that each of us individually would have to change our behavior in order to affect change. Yeah. So a good boycott should be strategic. And, yeah. and that does require all of us, you know, to participate. And so we should be thoughtful about where we dedicate our boycott energy if we're trying to make that that impact the other thing is one study i was reading about boycotts found as they, they studied a bunch of boys, boycotts and were looking at the common factors for successful boycotts in in the 21st century and the thing they found is that impacting a company's bottom line was actually not the most important factor to causing them to change their behavior the biggest thing was getting attention that made them feel like you were impacting their reputation yeah, with the public. Because like ultimately, corporations have things that affect their bottom lines all the time. And unless you're going to get literally millions of people to change their behavior, you're not going to get a corporation like Walmart to do very much. Yeah. But if you can truly get, you know, if you, can, if you can be like, look at what Walmart's doing and how they're using child labor. And, I'm, and we should all go shop at Target instead. And... Walmart is a bunch of evil, greedy people for doing this, and you can make that stick. That can be a big difference. That can really yeah. drive change. Um, yeah. And so, like, I think there's a lot of strategy to boycotts that make them effective, and we should be thoughtful about how we participate in them and how we advocate for them. But I don't think we should necessarily be like blame, blaming people for not making any individual personal moral choice about which yeah. products or services they boycott, especially because ultimately the other avenue for this advocacy is policy change. Yes. And holding our elected officials responsible for doing their jobs of making us not have to exert our secondary you know, influence on these huge organizations, but rather represent our interests directly. That is, is to the degree that we can you know, influence them directly in their policy, that can, that's like a very powerful tool that we should use. Yeah. It's, 
oftentimes when it comes to boycotts, shaming people into a boycott is yeah is is a is virtue signaling yes yeah yeah because i can i can guarantee you that i can point to at least seven different products that you buy that were unethically sourced totally i mean hell right now i'm talking to uh, i i'm i'm recording this on a macbook which was made made in factories in china probably by uh various different children that are in borderline slave conditions uh I'm wearing a shirt that I'm sure was made in some other country uh, where they, they, you know, they lock children in a, sh- in a sweatshop and force them to work long hours. Yeah. And that's horrible. And that's something that we should try to fight against. But at the end of the day, one individual's choice to not buy an item, number one, it doesn't mean they don't care. But mm-hmm. number two, it's not going to make a difference. What's going to make a difference is policy. Yeah some type of policy that makes it so that you're not allowed to do business in the United States. If you, if you uh, subject your workers to these types of conditions Mm -hmm. or, you know, say to other countries, our companies are not going to be allowed to buy from you unless, uh, unless you change your laws, unless you, uh, unless your workers are put in better conditions. Um, You know, to Michael's point about minimum wage, you know, companies, that pay their employees the federal minimum wage, which is still seven twenty five an hour. Mm-hmm. The way that you change that is by raising the fucking minimum wage. Yeah. Yep. You know, companies that exploit their workers by not giving them the benefits they deserve. You fucking you you use you use policy in order to make sure they get those benefits in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's how you actually make change. To you know. When we're talking about boycotts related to hell, I'll even I'll even call myself out when it comes to Chick Fil A. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to the fact that I I don't eat at Chick Fil A, that doesn't help the fact that uh, that marriage equality um, was illegal. What helped the fact that marriage equality was was illegal? What what eventually led to it becoming legalized was massive organizational efforts. All right, I uh, I did a summer internship for the human rights campaign. That had much more impact in that one summer than I've had my entire life of not eating Chick-fil-A. Mm-hmm. And I recognize that. Yeah. Your vote has, has uh, plays an important role. The people that you choose to vote for, whether or not they have the best interests of you or the people you care about in mind, that makes an impact. But the problem is shaming people into a boycott and, and using that to impugn their own virtue it kind of misses the point of collective action. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes it so that you're, you're, you're kind of accepting the premise that there is ethical consumption under our current system. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. if you just make individual choices, mm-hmm. like it, on an individual level, if you're, if you, if you remain individualistic, then you can solve the problems with our, in our country. But yeah. that's just, that's just not true. That's just not mm-hmm. the case. I'll give you an example. And in fact, I'll give you two examples from, you know, two different sides. Let's look at the trans issue. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, there was a massive push to do a boycott of uh, Hogwarts Legacy, which was a, a video game that was made uh, this year. And obviously it, it takes place in uh, the, the, the universe of Harry Potter, in which you play as a student uh, going to Hogwarts. 
there is this massive push by online activists to boycott this game. You know what happened? It is the number one best-selling game of 2023. The mm. number one best-selling game of 2023. Beating out uh, Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, mm. which reviews were... That was a huge like, release. Yeah, that was... <laughs> it was a huge release. Yeah. Universally, people loved it. Um, the re-release of Resident Evil 4, which Resident Evil 4, like the original Resident Evil 4, was a genre-defining game. Mm -hmm. uh, Star Wars Jedi Survivor. Uh, I played the first uh, the the first of the series. Uh, I've, I haven't played that one yet, uh, and it was like it was it was basically a, a Souls-like Star Wars game, and it was fucking incredible. It was amazing, mm -hmm. and and Hogwarts Legacy beat it. Yeah, and you know I will tell you. I played Star. I played uh, Hogwarts Legacy. It was good. It was not best-selling video game of the year. Yeah, good. And in yeah. fact, I'm not alone in believing that because uh, according to uh, according to like they they collect data on uh, what percentage of players have achieved certain achievements within the game mm -hmm. and the uh, and the achievement for defeating the final boss, which means you know you've beaten the game, is thirty percent. Only 30% of, of players of Hogwarts Legacy actually beat the game. Now, you know, there, there have been other games that, uh, you know, where the number th that are really prominent games that are really, you know, universally agreed upon great games like Red Dead Redemption 2 and The Witcher 3, where like the number is like 25%. But those games are like a million Impossibly hours. hard. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gotcha. No, 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 no. Oh, not impossibly see, hard, just impossibly long. Oh. Like Red Dead Redemption 2 is... Like I'm pretty sure it's the it has the longest main storyline of any video game ever. <laughs> I mean, I, like literally, I I beat what I thought was the main story, and the epilogue is literally just like forty more hours of game. Oh my god! The fucking epilogue. Um. So yeah, of course that number is going to be lower for for those games. Hogwarts Legacy is not as long of a game. I mean, it's a fairly long game, but it's not that long of a game. Mm. So like. People might have enjoyed it a little bit, but like they did not enjoy it. Best-selling video game of the year. Sure, yeah. And, and, and I think what, that goes back to like making your point of your boycott clear and reputation impacting, right? Like yeah. you have to like ultimately a boycott has to have a social reputational impact that is pretty consistently unidirectional for it to work. Yeah. If there's a big backlash, like there was with Hogwarts Legacy or like getting a bunch of atten extra attention over the boycott, like that's a problem because ultimately the boycott drew attention, but didn't draw bad, exclusively bad attention. And, yeah. and, and that's ultimately the goal of the boycott. Yeah. Yeah. And here's the other thing, like the goal of the boycott should be clearly defined. Like, what mm -hmm. are you trying to do? Yeah. Are you trying to, are you trying to punish JKR? Are you hoping that she's going to change her mind? Mm -hmm. Because I mean, I, you know, I hate to say this, but like, look, look, I have very strong, passionate feelings of vitriol towards JKR partially mm -hmm. because she wrote a series that was defining for my childhood. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, uh, she wrote this series that is perfect for the type of person who, um, feels out of place mm -hmm. Yeah. When growing up, who feels, uh, you know, like a misfit growing up. Honestly, the the perfect fucking uh, story 
for somebody who might be, say, I don't know, struggling with gender identity, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, struggling with being ostracized because of their gender identity. And the fact that she helped to instill those values of tolerance into me with her books and then turns around and becomes this total fucking bigot. Like, I fucking hate her for that. But you know what? If tomorrow she tweeted and said, you know what? I was wrong about trans people. I apologize. Mm -hmm. I was terrible. I, I should not have done that. I should not have said any of that stuff. I have changed my mind. You know what would actually change? Bugger all. Hmm. Because legislation is still being proposed in state after state after state after state yeah. to limit access to life-saving health care for both children and adults all across the United States. Trans people are still oppressed all around the world through various different levels. All right. There is still a much too high rate of suicidal ideation amongst trans youth that must be addressed that is not being addressed. And also there are still prominent Republican candidates for president that are actively advocating for national bans on trans affirming healthcare. That makes a difference. And look, if people decided to not play or buy Hogwarts legacy because, you know, they were trying to take a moral stance, I don't fault them for that at all. But you also need to be mm -hmm. clear about what you're actually trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. The things that make an impact are those pieces of legislation that you either fight to overturn if they're bad or you fight to bring forth if they are good. And in fact, we, we saw another example on the other side of this with Bud Light, where mm -hmm. they took a fucking picture of a trans person. Like, it, it wasn't even a full video game. They took mm -hmm. a picture of a trans person and a bunch of right-wingers flipped out and tried to do a boycott. Yeah. And on the surface, it might, have, it might seem like that boycott was successful. But here's the thing. Number one, like, you know, on the, the side of it being successful, uh, between April and June, the you know, revenue dropped 10.5% compared to last year in the United States. But here's the other thing. In other parts of the world, it actually increased. Mm -hmm. And Anheuser-Busch is, is actually not even based in the United States. Right? Anheuser-Busch is based in, uh, in Belgium. So around the world, they actually saw an increase of sales. And in fact, at this point, their sales are actually recovering. Mm -hmm. because all of the like all of the the hype about it eventually died down because you know eventually people just stop giving a shit yeah like people are going to fall back into their own ways and in fact uh the company has forecasted that by the end of the year they're actually expecting a profit growth of eight percent so it was temporarily successful but at the yeah. end of the day it it didn't end up being that successful. But also, like, the point was not clear. That's yeah, the other thing. The point wasn't clear. It was not clear at any point what anybody was trying to accomplish. And this is the problem with totally disorganized, quote-unquote, movements. In this case, it wasn't a movement. It was just a bunch of disorganized people raging, right? Yeah. That's the problem. It, like, what's it? It's not going to, like, what are they going to do? Apologize? Like, like, there's no objective. There's no change in behavior that's the goal. And so, like... And without that, all you're doing is denying yourself a watery cold beer. Yeah. And also, 
you kind of like you kind of turn people against you because people look at you like people look at you freaking out over a fucking picture. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just like, what the fuck are these people doing? Yeah. You really lose credibility for sure. Yeah. Here's what I would say about boycotts, because I think that there's multiple levels of analysis that we have to consider. There's the personal moral level Mm -hmm. and there's the functional level. Yeah. Yeah. On a personal moral level, I don't think that people should necessarily be judged for what they boycott. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I mean, I, okay. I would say that if someone came up to me and said, I don't drink bud because you know, I hate sure. trans people. Like, yeah, of course I'm going to judge you for that. <laughs> yeah. But you, you know? judge them not because they don't drink bud light. I don't really drink bud light, but it's not because, yeah. but you yeah. judge them because they hate trans people. And that's yeah, why yeah. they don't exactly. drink bud light. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't drink bud light. The reason for that is because, uh, Bud Light was responsible for the worst night of my entire life, <laughs> which, by the way, Michael was there for. Yeah, yeah. And every time I see a Bud Light can, I'm reminded of that night and it makes me want to vomit. And mm-hmm. so I cannot ever bring myself to drink it again, um, <laughs> which isn't Bud Light's fault. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, my fault. it's my fault for being a dumbass. But like, you know, I, I like I don't judge people for the products they refute. They refuse to buy. I judge people for what they actually do believe and the things that they do that have a measurable impact. Mm -hmm. Votes have a measurable impact. Protests have a measurable impact. Hell, even conversations about issues, having conversations about issues in which you try to educate people or argue with people one at a time, even that has an impact. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, in our capitalist system, Boycotts don't always have an impact. So on a moral level, I think that it's okay for people to have certain products that they're like, you know what? It makes me feel better to not participate in that particular product. You know, I I have things that I will continue to boycott um, for my own personal reasons, while also recognizing that there are things that, that there are companies that probably do far more evil that, uh, that I still, that I still buy from that I still do business with. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that the only person that can make that decision is you. On a functionalist level, I would say that you cannot have spontaneous boycotts. Yeah. First off, if you're going to have a successful successful boycott, you have to define what it is you're actually trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Like, if it's, I just want these people to apologize. I mean... <laughs> Kind of a waste of a boycott, but you know, kind of a waste at least of a you boycott, know what you're doing. But yeah. yeah, at least you, you know, I mean, an, an apology is not necessarily going to change policy, but like, you know, whatever. Uh, I am doing this because I'm trying to make sure that I'm, this company stops doing this specific practice that I don't like. You know, that can have, that can have an impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, there are many instances in which, um, in which politicians, you know, such as Bernie Sanders, have actually put pressure campaigns mm-hmm. on companies in order to change policies. And for the sake of their reputation, because of the fear of a boycott, yeah. they did. Yep. Amazon comes to mind. Yeah. The fact that Amazon raised their minimum wage to $15 an hour when Bernie Sanders did this major pressure campaign on them. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to Michael's point, it's not always just about the bottom line. It's about the reputation. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if you if you threaten the reputation of a company and thus create the threat of a boycott, 
then that could actually make them change yeah. the way that they go about doing something to, you know, that's to, leverage. That's leverage. That's leverage. Ultimately, like you're not going to be able to compete with the fact that labor costs 10 cents an hour in China, right? Yeah. Versus 725 in the US. You're not going to be able to compete that on the bottom line. There's almost no way you're going to make that cost up. But if you can get leverage yeah. by affecting the reputation, that's where you can make a big difference. And so like that strategy makes all the difference. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, a miscellaneous what the fuck. So Nathan, what's a miscellaneous what the fuck? Well, Michael, I'll tell you what the fuck a miscellaneous what the fuck is. So a miscellaneous what the fuck is a segment that we created because we have an asshat segment for particularly heinous individuals. And we have a D-bag segment for people that make just stupid arguments. But sometimes something really funny happens that doesn't involve either of those. And sometimes we just need to talk about them. Mm -hmm. So we wanted a segment full of miscellaneous things that make us just say, what the fuck? <laughs> so, Michael... What is this week's miscellaneous what the fuck? Well, this week's miscellaneous what the fuck is delivered to us uh, from Mount Juliet, Tennessee, where Ooh. a pastor named Greg Locke, who is uh, somewhat known, I think, in Christian circles for being super MAGA and super, you know, intense. Uh, I like him already. <laughs> yeah, he was pulling some shit with uh, regards to the Barbie movie that just really was fucking funny and crazy yeah. to look at. Um, yeah. So if you haven't heard about the movie Barbie, there's a Barbie movie that was recently released and it's delightful, but yeah. people on the right are flipping the fuck out because it has the audacity to question some of the, you know, traditional uh, structures of power uh, in the United States. We don't have to get into it too deeply beyond that, except for the fact that, you know, people are losing their shit. Ben Shapiro is losing their, his shit. Like, every all the right-wing commentators are viewing this as a direct attack on their worldview. Which, by the way, another example of a boycott that really just put a yeah. movie, put put something into the limelight. Exactly. Because, yeah, the, the movie ended up making, like, what, $1.5 billion? Something I don't like know. That. Like, yeah. Like, over a billion well dollars. Well over a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah well over a billion huge. dollars. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, great, great, great job, Good guys. job, everybody. Great job. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, a video has been circulating of this Tennessee pastor um, who, let me just paint a picture. He's, he's salt and pepper, gray hair. Uh, he's, you know, he's got a short sleeve button up and he's kind of jacked. Like he's got, you know, a little ripply. Uh, he's one of Ooh. those pastors. That's so kind of ripply, you know, and he's like got a huge screen behind him as one of those churches that's super techie. And in his hand, it's a little hard to see in the video, but in his hand, he has a baseball bat with a Bible taped to it. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Which what is, type of tape is it? Like, is it, is it? Is it duct tape? Is it masking tape? Is it uh, like... definitely duct tape? It is okay. duct tape and, and zip ties. Uh, so he's well, that's, got. I mean, that's 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 responsible yeah. tape because like I, I hear that and I'm thinking, you know, I depending on what tape you use, that's just gonna Bible's fly, gonna all fly over off. Place. And if you you're know. going to use a Bible to weight your baseball bat, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is a home defense tip. Uh, <laughs> you Although have to tape when you take it, it off, I feel like that's like isn't the duct tape gonna like tear up the. Uh, the, cover? the Bible? Yeah, I don't think he's really worried about the Bible based I, on what he does next. I feel like you're supposed to respect the Bible, though, uh, aren't you? I well, mean, or that's... 
Or if you're him, it's it's your weapon against ah. demons. And um, by that, I assume you mean like reading out of it, right? Nope. That's what you mean? Well, so... Because <laughs> that's what you're supposed to do in a book? Like, yeah, no, no, no. In horror movies, obviously what you have to do to fight the demons that are coming at you is hit them with literal Bibles, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so that is literally what he's doing. So he, he's he's quoting from Corinthians while he's doing this, right? And he's quoting, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. The pulling down of strong hands. And then he turns to a Barbie house, which is now in screen, a beautiful Barbie mansion, and proceeds to absolutely positively fucking destroy this thing with the baseball bat Bible. (laughs) Which is just like, oh, I love it. I'm just loving, this is probably the most absurd freak out (laughs) over the Barbie movie that I've seen so far. I mean, some sometimes, like, you do have to wonder, do these people wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and think, you're the very picture of sanity? <laughs> or do they realize how fucking nuts they yeah. sound? This guy's like, you know what? I'm a, I'm a moral, spiritual leader, and I'm going to teach these people lessons that they will use in their day-to-day life to be good people. And I'm going to do that. With a baseball bat. <laughs> <laughs> With a Bible attached to it. Yeah, and again, um, to name's point, and I am just, I am just so sane. I'm as sane yeah. as you get. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, okay. I mean, in his defense, though, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe he just saw the wrong movie. I mean, I know that there are horror movies that exist out there mm-hmm. where, yeah. like, you know, it's like a, it's like a dollhouse that gets infected by demons or possessed yeah possessed by demons yeah and like maybe maybe he just he saw one of those movies i i i I don't do horror movies so i can't tell you any names of them but maybe Mm -hmm. he saw one of those movies and thought it was the barbie movie and was like well fuck i need to like i need to sanctify this house with the bible and i i don't want to touch it because i'm afraid of this demon like fucking fucking uh possessing me you know maybe Maybe it was just maybe it was just therapy like maybe that's it Cause like I look, I I am a complete pansy when it comes to horror movies. Like <laughs> I like I'm the type of person that you know the the scariest that I can tolerate is like Sixth Sense, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe I, that's it. I mean, he he does talk in his sermon about how you have to like destroy the house to get the demons out and all that stuff. I mean, so maybe yeah. you're right. Maybe he like was dressed in his pink in his all pink to go see the Barbie movie <laughs> like a good Tennessee pastor should. And he accidentally walked into a horror movie theater and he was like, Oh my God, I must <laughs> profess on this. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Maybe uh, that's it. Sometimes I just, I look at this stuff and I'm just like, what the fuck? Yeah. What the fuck? So now we will end our show as we usually do with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is that it is uh, my first week back to classes, and I am so excited. Mm. I uh, I always I always love meeting new students, um, and it looks like there's gonna be a there's gonna be a good group this year. Uh, so you know I feel feel energized, uh, feel ready for the semester, and uh, you know also it's kind of surreal to think about the fact that this semester uh, I is going to end. With me as a dad. Oh, that's so remarkable. You yeah, know? that is surreal. Yeah. 
What about you, Michael? What's your highlight? So my highlight is perspective. Um, this weekend, Bree and I are going on a overnight backpacking trip, which will be super fun. So we're going to be hiking in the mountains on the Olympic Peninsula, and we've found this really beautiful um, mountain pass where we're gonna where we're gonna camp. It should be gorgeous. The weather's supposed to be beautiful, um, and it's going to be really fun. And I think I've had like an absolutely fucking absurd crazy week and it's going to be really nice to like just get out in nature and you know walk up a mountain and sleep on top of it (laughs) nice nice bro well enjoy yourself thanks dude i appreciate it and now we'll thank all of the incredible people that make this show go so thank you to our amazing patrons kyle chaska fade out scoop tobias jansen taylor bloom and jerry deviller and thank you to our amazing editor, Kayla, for all they do to make this show possible. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to The Perspectrum. And you'll hear from us again. <laughs>